there is no place like home. This is a sentiment that most of us are familiar with. Whether we've been traveling for a few days or after a long, hard day of work, there is nothing like being home. The familiar smells, the well-known feelings, the recognizable location of all of our things. Being home brings a sense of peace and comfort to us. There's nothing like sleeping in your own bed or relaxing on your favorite spot on the couch. There's a familiarity with everything that brings this level of comfort to our experience. While it's nice to get away for a period of time, there is nothing like walking in that door and feeling at home. Truly, there is no place like being at home. But this is not only true of our experience at home, but also in our lives. When we live a particular way for a long period of time, it becomes like a home to us. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions become a kind of sacred space in our life. We find peace and comfort in our behavior, in our actions. Patterns are created in our life, and those Patterns prove predictable and repeatable. There is no place like home in our sin. As Christians, we are acutely aware of the temptation to fall back into our former sins. Like, a, like our favorite spot on the couch, it's easy to slip back into some of our former ways. Because living in sin was like home to us. Every one of us, regardless of when we were saved, whether it be at a young age or later in life, we were so accustomed to sin and rebellion against God that it is second nature. And as we think this morning about the temptation to slide back into our former ways, we need to understand there is a way forward. That we need to move out of our sin and live in the righteousness of Christ. That God has given us the power to do that through the gospel. There's nothing you need. There's no magic pill you take. No program you need to do. If you're in Christ, you have in you the power of the Spirit to live and walk in righteousness. Now, this this is the point that Paul has been driving for. This is what Paul has been leading them towards and teaching towards throughout this letter. That that as Christians, we ought to embrace our new identity in Christ Jesus. So for example, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul told the church, In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hand by the putting off of the body of flesh. In other words, a part of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is dying to sin through the death of Christ. And as we considered last week in chapter 3 verse 3, Paul said that, For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you are a Christian, a a regenerate believer, you have died to sin. When Jesus died, you died. And so you're believing by faith that when Jesus was on that cross, He died in your place, and that you ought to die to sin. And so Paul here has given us the the doctrinal foundation 
for the moral imperatives of the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ empowers us to live in righteousness. Again, brothers, sisters, it is essential that we understand this truth before we dive into this passage this morning. That is, that the exhortations you are about to hear are for those and those only who have been born again. The killing of sin does not make one a Christian. Changing your behavior, modifying your actions does not merit eternal life. Rather, being a killer of sin is characteristic of a Christian. Someone asks, how do I know that he or she's a Christian? Because they are a killer of sin. They're known for killing sin in them. Thus, we must understand that Paul here in this passage is not teaching a work ethic that results in justification, but rather a justification that results in sanctification, that we are made holy by the power of the gospel alone and not by human effort. It is not God plus us that enables us to become righteous. It is solely based on the finished work of Christ that enables us to embrace this new identity. Because Jesus died, we sing, we can live. And so we understand that because Jesus died, because we died with Christ, we too have the power to kill sin, to die to sin. And because we live with Christ, we have the power to live righteous lives. Friend, I hope to encourage you with that truth this morning. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are entangled in sin. You call upon the name of Christ, you you claim to be a Christian, but you are ensnared in sin. There is power within you if you are genuinely born again, indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You have the power to walk in new life. You do. And you've been deceived by the enemy to believe that you cannot walk in the light. But, But friend, I hope to convince you otherwise. And this morning, perhaps you're deceived You think that you and God are okay while you live in rebellion against Him. And you'll find this morning a warning for you. That if you continue in sin, you will die eternally separated from God. With that in mind, I hope to help us understand this passage. I invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This morning we're going to consider verses 4. 5 through 11. Of course, this chapter, particularly 1 through the end, verse 17, or or through this section, is one main idea. We've been looking at it in three parts. This morning, we're going to consider the negative, uh, mostly negative aspect of what Paul, of them calling them to take off something, and then we'll see next week the putting on, uh, briefly this morning as well. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, 
and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Well, as we consider this passage this morning, the main idea that Paul has for us is that the Christian life is characterized by the continual putting off of old ways and putting on of our new life in Christ. This is the pictorial idea that Paul has. He paints this picture that the Christian life is characterized by this ongoing activity of taking off and putting on. And this morning, we're going to focus primarily on the taking off. What, what do we need to take off? What do we need to remove? And then next week, we'll think about what we need to add, what we need to put on. And so this morning, the call for us, the, the main exhortation for us this morning is to kill sin. The question for you, believer, Christian, brother, sister, are you killing sin? Are you actively, proactively about the killing of sin in your life, of removing sin and embracing your new identity in Christ? And so this morning, I want us to think about this passage in this way. First, we are to put away our former ways characterized by passion and sinful practices and embrace or put on our new identity in Christ. So we want to walk through what we need to take off and then think about what we need to put on. First, we see here in verses 5 through 7, we are to put to death your former passions. Look what Paul writes here in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. The Bible is clear that we as human beings have inherited a sin nature from Adam. Because everyone in this room is a descendant of Adam, everyone in this room has inherited sin. No one taught you how to sin, no one gave you a class on how to rebel against God. Every one of us are born with the propensity to sin, to rebel against God, to fall short of His glorious standard. And our natures, therefore, are corrupt. This is what theologians call human depravity. We are depraved. Now, this doesn't mean that we are as depraved as we could be. Uh, The Bible teaches that God is restraining evil in this world, and so everyone in this room is evil, but we're not as evil as we could be. I guess that's good news. Only through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then, we learn that we're freed from our sin nature and empowered to live by the gospel. And so I just want to reiterate this this morning. As we talk about sin and in the church, so often it's us versus them. It's this kind of like we're, this is a holy huddle and uh, the world is the one that is in sin. No, no, I hope to clarify something that the Apostle Paul made clear through his letters. He used to describe himself as the chief of sinners. You see, what it means to be a Christian is to recognize that you are a sinner, that you're not better than the person sitting next to you, that you deserve hell. But by the grace of God, you've been saved. 
And so this isn't about pointing fingers this morning. This is about pointing one finger, and that's back at us. That we are sinners, and we need to be real about this if we have any hope of saving a lost and dying world. And so Paul here tells this church, he says, listen to me. He says, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Paul, throughout this passage, has been contrasting the flesh with the spirit. That which is put to death here is described as earthly. Look at the verb he uses, put to death. It's interesting enough that Paul uses this language. To, to put to death something means to kill something, doesn't it? It means to eliminate it, to, to, to kill its life. In other words, Paul says, don't just put away these things, kill these things. Why? Because he knows that if we don't kill them, they'll come back to haunt us in the end. That if we don't put to death these things, if we don't ultimately sever these things from our life, well then they will continually creep out throughout our Christian life. They were to kill their sin. They weren't to play around with their sin. They were to kill it. They weren't to make it a pet that they somehow chained up at home, but they were to eliminate it from their life. N.T. Wright says it this way, every Christian has the responsibility to investigate the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating him personally and to cut them off without pity. Better than that than to have them eventually destroy them. Now we've all seen the news stories about the, 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 the guy who goes to the, to the store, the pet store, and, and he buys him a python and he brings it home and he puts it in his house. And then, then we see in the, the, the nightly news, man is eaten by python. And we wonder what fool he was. Did he, not, did he think it was going to be like a cute dog that he could pet and play with? Not at all. And this is, this is a picture of what we do. We bring sin into our life and we think, oh, we, we have it under control. And lo and behold, it kills us. John Owen infamously said in the 17th century, capturing this idea, he says it the best, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Oh friend, that is the, the, the picture of what Paul is painting here. You, you are either proactive at killing sin or it will slowly and subtly suffocate you until you die. But what sin does Paul have in mind here? What, what, what does he have in mind? Well, he has in mind the killing of a particular type of sin, doesn't he? Paul makes clear in this passage that our assault against sexual sin must be systematic, it must be drastic, and it must be comprehensive if we are to have any victory over it. And in the midst of a culture that is morally perverse in this particular category, what a word for the church in the 21st century just as much as it was in the first. Paul List. We love lists, don't we? It gives us a sense of clarity. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. There is many other lists in the New Testament. But here, Paul focuses particular on a subset of sin, and that is sexual sin. He, he lists them here. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. All of them relating to the same root problem. 
and that is brokenness in sexual sin. Let's look through this list just for a moment, just to make sure we have a good sense of what Paul means. First up, he says sexual immorality. Now, the language here that Paul uses is pornonia. This is where we get our modern-day word, pornography. This is any type of sexual sin that is outside the confines of marriage between a man and a woman. And what makes it immoral is that God has explicitly condemned it. Now, our world today is very confused on this particular category. No doubt many Christians, well-meaning perhaps, have sought to distort God's Word in this particular category. What made it immoral was that God had condemned it. It was unlawful. It included a variety of things, and we could go through. And, and so often, because of our sin nature, we kind of want to say, well, does he mean this? Does he mean that? Does he, well, what does he mean? Well, he, he means what you think he means, all right? We don't need to be creative here, all right? He means anything that is contrary to nature. Anything that is outside God's clear expression of marriage, and I'll qualify that as heterosexual marriage as biblically defined. And he goes on to describe it in a various ways. There's the impurity, that which is impure, that, that which is filled with moral corruptness. If you want to think more about this, Romans 1 and 2 is, a, is just a vivid picture. Romans 1 and 2 of the depravity of man. You, you think that 21st century Sexual revolution is somehow new to humanity. Friend, this is as old as the garden. And this ought to give us hope because the remedy, as we'll see, the gospel can fix all of this. He goes on, not only impurity, but passion, that is lust, this insatiable desire for something that is outside of what God has ordained. These desires that have taken root and taken control of their heart. Passion. So often in this particular category of sin, we think we're in control, but we're not. It enslaves us. It captivates us. It, It captures our heart in a way that we don't even recognize so many times in counseling men and women who are caught in particular sexual sins don't even recognize how far they've gone down the road until it's too late. This is why Paul says you got to kill it. you got to sever its life. Now to be clear here in this passage, Paul here is not condemning sex. God created sex in the confines of marriage to be good and glorious, not to be perverted the way our human hearts so often do. Rather, what he is condemning is that which is outside of God's biblically confined and defined marriage between a husband and a wife. Now I want you to hear this. Paul's writing to Christians here this morning. 
He's writing to Christians. He's writing to a church. He's, he's not writing to the brothel. He's not writing to, to those who are captivated by these things. He's writing to those who were once defined by these things. So friend, don't lose hope here this morning. There is hope in this passage this morning because this is what you once were, he says. Well, he goes on and concludes the list with two others, evil desire and greed. Both here captivate, capture rather an idea of an unquenchable appetite for something that God has expressly forbidden. What made, it, what made the desire evil, what, or what made the desire wrong rather, was that it was evil. It was, it was motivated by that which God had forbidden. In coveting, God expressly made clear, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. They were known for coveting their brothers and sisters in Christ. At the heart of these desires, Paul makes expressly clear, it is that of a form of idolatry. Look at what he says there. It is idolatry. Why was it idolatry? Because, you see, at the heart of these sexual sins and the sexual sins that we are tempted with is the image of self. It's about self about selfish desires. Rather than serving someone else, it is about serving self. And as Paul called elsewhere, we are to flee idolatry. Brothers and sisters, since we have died with Christ, we are to live in light of this newfound freedom in Christ and not go back to our former ways. We ought to see that our lives are to be transformed and not to be conformed to this world. We are to set apart our lives. Now notice here in this passage, Paul offers in verse 6 and 7 a motivation to kill sin. Paul sought to motivate these young Christians to action by warning them of the wrath of God. Look what he says there in verse 6. On account of these, that is that list, the wrath of God is coming. He doesn't say it might come, but rather it is coming. There is a, a day coming where God will condemn eternally those who have rebelled against His ordered creation. You can pervert Gender all you want, he says. You can pervert sexuality all you want, but one day God is coming to condemn humanity for rebelling against his created order. And wrath here is defined as a strong indignation. God does not speak lightly about these matters. These are, these are not light things. These are big things. And God will judge those who rebel against Him. The Bible is clear. We ought to be clear. But we ought to be clear also in verse 7. In these two you once walked. Paul here, in a way to motivate them to kill sin, he's saying, friend, this isn't who you are anymore. He's extending to him. This is what you once were. This, this isn't who you are anymore. You see, you've become identified by your sin rather than your Savior. You're known more for what you used to live than what you are now. 
And he reminds them with the hope of the gospel. And friend, if you are living in this sin, let me encourage you to come into the light. This is who you once were. And as Paul reminded the church in Ephesus, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words. Let no one deceive you, brothers and sisters, thinking light about sexual sin. Look, we live in a culture that is confused on this, and if we're not careful, we too will be confused on these things. Do you recognize that when you watch your favorite movie and TV shows that you're exposed to more sexual sin than your grandparents were in their whole lifetime? We are immersed in a culture that loves perverse expression in this way. It is normal. It is regular. And if we're not careful, our hearts will become numb to these things in such a way that we will brush them off as if they are unimportant to the things of God. This passage makes clear that God's wrath is coming and that those who are in Christ have been severed from their former life. We ought to make a decisive break This ought not longer define who we are, and so therefore we should not return to them again. See, friend, it is easy to slip back into our old ways. We were so comfortable in them, so normal in them. Paul reminds them not to go again to these. These Christians were characterized by a life of willful rebellion, but now they were free in Christ. Friend, I wonder this morning, are you trapped in some form of sin? Have you begun to rationalize your sin? It's it's not that bad. I'm in control. You're never in control of sin. You understand that, right? By very nature, sin, if you allow it, is in the driver's seat. Perhaps this morning you claim the name of Christ, but you've been caught in sexual sin. Here's what you need to do this morning. You need to walk in the light. What does that mean? That means you need to confess that you have been living contrary to the will of God. You need to profess faith in Christ, and you need to walk in the light. And you need to call people into your life who will hold you accountable to following Jesus. If you think you can walk in the light, if you think you can kill sin, and you've been living in this and you think you can kill it apart from others, you are deceived, my friend. The killing of sin is an important task and we must get to it. Or it will kill us. Keep going the road you're going, friend. And you will die eternally apart from God you will destroy your life here on earth you'll destroy your marriage you'll destroy your relationships you'll destroy everything that you love because you love your sin more than you love your savior I say this strongly friend because the apostle Paul uses the word kill kill it kill it today well not only that we see in this passage that Paul goes on 
Not only are we to kill sin, we are to put off sinful practices. Look what he says there in verses 8 and 9. He says, listen, you might be pointing the fingers of those really wretched people this morning. You might think you're doing okay because you're not ensnared in sexual sin. But Paul goes on there. Look at verse 8 and 9. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Part of what Paul here has identified is the relational and social sins related to the life of the believer. You know, so often we kind of focus on the big sins, the ones we just considered. And we let the subtle sins, the little small things, go by. We're like, ah, it's not a big deal to gossip. Ah, it's not a big deal to be angry. Ah, it's not a big deal to have malice towards someone else, to hate somebody else. Oh, it's okay to hate. I mean, after all, we rationalize it. After all, I mean, you don't know what they did to me. Paul begins by saying, but now. He's emphasizing that as Christians, we must make a decisive break, not only from the bigger, more noticeable sins, but that which are often characterized as subtle. But now, you've got to put them all away. These also relate to the former way of life, but now they have a new life. Look here at the list that he gives. Anger. Strong anger, an emotional aspect where we're angry with somebody else. Does this characterize you, friend? As a Christian? Wrath? A state of intense displeasure? Do you, do you demonstrate wrath towards someone else? And you claim the name of Christ? What? Malice, sort of a mean-spirited viciousness towards someone else, a malice towards them. These are strong languages, aren't they? Slander. Literally, it is to defame someone, to slander someone's name, to speak evil of someone else. And in the context of this passage, means other Christians. An obscene talk or filthy language. So often we are known more by our sinful talk than we are about our encouraging words. Paul here calls on them to put away sin that was driving a wedge in this new community. As we'll see in the context of verse 11, perhaps it was racially or ethnically motivated. Regardless of it, we are called to put to death the words of our mouth. Remember what Jesus said, that it's out of the mouth, out of our mouths come our heart? Well, why, why was it that Paul was so focused on these verbal sins? Because Paul knew that they were marks of those who had not been truly regenerate. So as Christians, we're to put away all these things. We're to be marked by unity, not rivalry. Therefore, we're to rid ourselves of any vice that would sow discord in the community of Christ. How often are we known more for our words that hurt others rather than our words that build others up? Again, one New Testament author says it this way, like wild plants blown by the wind, hateful words can scatter their seeds far and wide, giving birth to more anger wherever they land. Friend, is that you? 
Do you just go around this congregation sowing discord? Oh, did you hear what so-and-so said? Did you hear what they did? I can't believe they would do that. Do you just sow discord? Or rather, do you sow encouraging words? Man, isn't it encouraging to see the way that brother has been loving his wife? How much he's grown in his words. I, I hear it in the way he prays on the Lord's Day. How, how he's growing deeper in his understanding of the things of Christ and, and his affection and love for the, for the congregation has just immensely grown. Finally here he says, do not lie to one another. He calls on them not to lie. <laughs> I mean, you think that church... Today is bad. I mean, in the first century, churches were dealing with, with Christians lying about one another. You think, my goodness, how bad it was it? In, in our day of fake news and deliberate misinformation, God's people must be those who are truth tellers. If we are to be ambassadors of the truth, messengers of the truth, what does it say when we are known for our deception rather than the truth? Friend, I wonder, do you use your words to build others up or to tear them down? Are you known more in this congregation, in this community, by your harsh words, your criticizing words, or those words which edify and encourage? Do you, do you see others as objects of your wrath, or rather objects of your love? Brothers and sisters, these vices must not be named among us. We should not allow them to spread among us. We must seek to be a cul-de-sac of such evil. You might say, well, what does this look like? Well, if someone comes to you and begins to spread lies or, or malice or slander another brother or sister in Christ, all you have to do is say, I, I don't want to hear that. No, thank you. Go talk to that person you have a problem with. Don't, don't tell me about someone else. Let it be a place where gossip dies. Let, let you be the place where, where it dies. Don't, don't be the one who facilitates lies and misinformation and deception and slander about a fellow brother and sister in Christ. Do you know why it's such a big deal? Because Jesus went to Calvary for that person. And when we slander someone who claims the name of Christ, we're saying that Jesus, you were a fool to die for their sins. We are spurning the death of Christ. We're saying that that individual isn't valuable and worthy of dignity and respect. But they are. Because Christ Jesus died for their sins just as much as he died for you. Oh friend, we must seek to rid them. We must rid from our, our heart anything which seeks to tear one another down, belittle one another. We must rather be those who give godly criticism, receive godly criticism, and give and receive godly encouragement. We must welcome even the worst of sinners. And seek to lead them to the cross of Calvary. Finally here, in conclusion, we see Paul calls on them 
to not only rid themselves of their former life, but to embrace their new identity in Christ. He says, having put off your old self with its practices, verse 10, and having put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of or after the image of its creator. Paul here in this passage has been using this metaphor of changing clothes, of taking off and putting on. Like an old pair of clothes, we're to take off our old ways and to put on a new pair of clothes. The Christian life is described by this continual ridding of the stains of sin and putting on these new robes of righteousness. And, and so we ought to see this as a regular activity of taking off, but rather also being clothed. This is why Paul says, listen, you need to put on the new self. Now notice here in verse 10, the standard of the new self. It is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. In other words, you aren't just having new clothes for new clothes, but rather new clothes that are fashioned after the likeness of Jesus. Now do you see why Paul spent so much time in chapter 1 talking about who Jesus is? Because that's who you're being created into. That's who you're being made into. You are being made into the image of Christ Jesus. Paul would say it this way to the church in Ephesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that we should walk in them. You are a new creation, friend. And he is making you to look like Jesus, to think like Jesus, to love like Jesus, to believe like Jesus. Or in that great golden chain For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. A part of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is that you and I are being shaped, fashioned, and formed into the image of Jesus. Therefore, we ought to reflect Christ to those around us. That's what it means to embrace this new identity, is to live like, like Christ did. This is what Paul will go on to describe in verses 12 through 17 that we'll consider next week. But finally here in verse 11 is somewhat of a strange verse. In all this business of taking off and killing sexual sin and and embracing our new identity in Christ, he has such a strange passage that follows it, it seems as if it's a misfit. Look what he says there in verse 11. Here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Paul here in this passage paints a picture of the church. This new covenant people who are unified without distinction. They're unified with all people without distinction. They're not made up of various groups. In other words, Paul says here, there are people in the church who shouldn't be in the church. That's his point. You might say, who's not welcome in the church? Sinners. If you ever paid attention to your Bible, when Paul writes to really, really bad churches, he always begins by reminding them who they are not how they live. You see, when he began the the letter to the church in Corinth, which was really, really messed up, he began by writing to them and calling them saints. 
You may think, well, my goodness, how were they saints in the way that they were living? They hated each other. They were always fighting with one another. They were always, I mean, they had sin in the camp. But yet he called them saints because, you see, the motivation to living righteously is the truth of the gospel. And this is what he does here in this passage. He says that God is drawing a people unto himself who are not like one another, who are different from one another. There is a place for every sinner in the kingdom of God. Because God is collecting these different groups of people and uniting them together and making them holy as Christ is holy. A Greek and a Jew. Two ethnic groups that would not have been hanging out at McDonald's together. They wouldn't have wanted to be around one another. One despising the other. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Those who were the covenant people and those who were outside of the covenant. Barbarian and Scythians were seen by the Greeks as, as ignorant, foolish people. They were, non, they were non-Greek speakers. They were seen as what you think, barbarian. When you think of the word barbarian, you think of someone who's uneducated, someone who didn't have the faculties to be able to communicate clearly and education with, a, with, a, with a sense of education. That's how the Greeks viewed these particular people groups. And then finally, slave and free. Those who have different social and political parties. Those who were separated. Ones who were free and those who were enslaved in a broken and fallen system. But notice he says that in Christ they're all equal. They're all one. In the new creation, God's people are not divided but united in one body. This is why he's using such strong language about division in the church through our words and our actions. Though cultural differences remain among us, it is the blood of Christ that unifies us into one family called the church. Friend, I wonder how we're so often tempted to these sort of earthly distinctions among us. Maybe even looking at former sins to make distinction among us. Well, you don't understand how they once lived or what they once did. As Christians, we must not draw distinctions among the church the members of our church, because of their economic status, their social status, their gender or identity. As a congregation, we want to work against such distinctions by relating to one another as brothers and sisters, and more importantly, treating each other like brothers and sisters. In this way, we follow Christ. In this way, we embrace our new identity as a new covenant people in the church. I heard a preacher tell a story once of an experience that he had before church. He was looking through his closet, getting ready to go to to church that morning, and he spotted an old pair of shoes. He had thought his wife had thrown them out some time ago, and as he stood there, he slipped them on his feet. It felt comfortable. They were his favorite pair of shoes. Man, they just, they fit just right. He looked down at them, all worn and tattered, They were made for his foot. They fit. Years of walking in them. Years of living in them. And just in that instant, those old shoes he slipped into and and felt right at home. They fit and conformed perfectly. Well, he had to hurry on to church and and get ready and and begin to preach that morning. And, And as he was preaching there, as he was delivering a sermon to a large congregation... Some five, six hundred folks. He, he looks down and lo and behold, he has those old tattered shoes on. 
embarrassed as he looks at these worn-out shoes in his nice pressed uh, suit. It was a reminder to him how easy it is for us to slip into our old ways. So often we can just slip into our former sins like it was nothing, like, like it was something that we had done yesterday. But as Christians, we are called to live distinctly, to take off our old sin and to embrace our new identity in Christ. Like an old comfy pair of shoes, sin can feel natural. Friend, you must put to death the sin that is in you. We must put off our former ways and embrace the love of Christ and embrace this new identity we have. Let us do it by the power of His Spirit for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that You would help us to walk in righteousness. Help us to to embrace who we are in Christ, not merely who we once were. Let us throw off these sins that has ensnared us and entangled us for so long. And let us live righteous lives for your glory, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.